Welcome to Conversations Over Coffee, where we're brewing inspiring discussions on the Philippine startup ecosystem with those who are making things happen. I'm your host, Bitsantas from Kickstart Ventures. Join me in every episode as we sit down with key figures in the startup community as we explore their successes and challenges and how we can work together to shape the future. Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of Conversations Over Coffee with Kickstart. I am Bit Santos, your host, and I'm here with our very first featured guest, our president, Kickstart's president, Minette Navarrete. Always someone friendly <laughs> for the first episode. Hello again, Minette. Hi, Bit. <laughs> it was nice to see you earlier today. Yes, we were literally in these two chairs just a while ago having an actual work conversation. So now we shall have a casual conversation over coffee. Okay. So, Minette, how are Life is good. What can how I was, say? How has 2022 been so far? You mean 2023? Oh, 2023, yes. <laughs> and it's just at the start of the year when you're getting used to yes, writing 2023. Ah, yes. oh, gosh. It's been hectic. And I think hectic's the way we like it. There's always something new happening. There's always, there were always many deals anyway coming into the end of 2022. So it feels like 2023 is a quick pickup. And a fresh start. It always kind of feels that way. But ever since I've joined Kickstart, like every January, it's kind of felt that way. That you know, we left yeah. a lot of stuff in towards the end of the year and a lot of things to pick up and kind of hit the ground running. Yeah, but you're always sort of trying to get to the end of the year where everything is neat and neat and clean, <laughs> and it never really happens. But it is so good to see all that energy going into the drive for completion, and then it's a new year. I think we'll start the conversation like proper with, uh, you know, we kind of started the year with this big news that hit, you know, a lot of the famous blogs that we like to follow. Um, White onions are now 700 pesos a kilo. <laughs> no, not, not quite. But yes, that was definitely on our, in our daily conversations. But you made the 450 over 50 for Asia 2023. Congratulations. Thank you. It's really nice to get the recognition and the validation. And you more than anyone else will know, I think, that it's it's really a team effort. It never looks like that from the outside. And it always looks like there's somebody carrying the flag. But that is what it is. It is carrying the flag. And it's the work of the whole team. So you know... This is all yours as well. So the Forbes 50 over 50 for Asia 2023 features 50 women over the age of 50 from across the Asia Pacific region who are reaching new heights and inspiring the region's next generation. I was looking at the list a while ago and it's, it's pretty impressive, the company that you keep in that list. How, how do you feel to be on that list? It was an awesome list. These women are doing just such spectacular things. I... You always, okay, I get a little bit of imposter syndrome, like, really, I am in this list? It was a surprise, to say the least. I didn't know this was in the works. But it is so good to be part of a list of women who are change makers, who are movers in the societies they inhabit. Um, and I feel what it does is it validates the work of Kickstart and the team, how we are changing perceptions, changing practices, and maybe making the world better for more people. Yeah, I mean, I think you say it was a surprise, but I think I can speak for the team that we're not exactly the most humble people. 
<laughs> we we really do think that the work we're doing, you know, we do want to change the world. Yeah. Um, but fully understanding, you know, we start from where we are here in the Philippines, trying to extend our reach to the wider region, to Southeast Asia and beyond. So we definitely appreciate the recognition that, you know, the rest of us also receive through this, through your work and your leadership. Our work. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So I guess like pulling back, I remember, um, and it, like someone reminded me recently that you had once shared a story that when you were seven years old, your mom had asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up. And it feels like a, a nice story to start with, especially with starting our conversation with this age-based list. Um, you know, when you were asked, what did you want to be when you grew up? You answered, perfect. perfect. I, wa- I wanted to be perfect. So, you know, how do you think you fared in your pursuit <laughs> of perfection in those past, you know? So I think you go through this period where you think you are nearing, attaining, achieving perfection. And I remember sometime in my life where I thought, okay, so I wasn't perfect, but I was very, very good. And then I got over that. And I realized every day how far from perfection I am. And I think there's something really liberating about that. I think there's something that reminds you that the world is ever-changing and there's so much that you don't know. So, you know, how is it faring? I think I am far, far from it. And every day, particularly, I guess, in the work that we do, there's always someone smarter, someone doing something different, someone trying new things. And I realize how much talent and courage and skill it takes for all these founders to do something different to try and change the world from where they stand. One of the best things that I think, and sort of bookending the story from 50 years ago about wanting to be perfect, I had a mentor. So one of my mentors is Victoria Egan. She was my predecessor in Shangri-La. She was the first Asian, I think, and female CEO of Laura Ashley Global. She had said something to the effect of where her conviction in me was based was not the fact that I would always get things right, but that if I got something wrong, I would make it right. And I thought the belief in the ability to bounce back, to recognize error, and to make things better was such a transformative, liberating thought. So I think if, if you were to ask me now, what do I want to be when I grow up? I think my answer would be not perfect, but better. Mm. And better every day is the yeah. hope. Yeah, I mean, when you're seven, and I wish I had your confidence at, <laughs> when I was seven, I'm pretty sure I was a confident child, but I wouldn't have gone so far as to say. So what would you have said? I think I would have said something Something like great. Mm. So not quite perfect. But, you know, when you're seven years old and kind of have a simpler view of life and things. Perfect kind of, I imagine perfect would mean like everything perfect. But obviously with, with the wisdom of experience, how do you kind of define, do you still aim to be perfect? Given that I imagine your definition of perfection Changes. has changed since then. Gosh. I don't think I aim to be perfect, but I certainly aim for mastery of the craft. So 
when I think of the work that you and I do with respect to making investments, with respect to supporting startups, a lot of my goal for myself is to constantly be a better leader, a, be- a better mentor, a better investor, a better advisor. And that means trying to make as much time as I can going out talking to people, whether it's talking to you and the rest of the team or talking to the founders, talking to LPs, talking to co-investors. I know that we, we're a relatively young firm at 10 going on 11. And there is not as much experience that you get operating out of the Philippines. But to try and make sure that we, all of us, go out there, out into the world where we breathe the same air that customers breathe, that founders breathe, that other investors breathe. I think it helps open our eyes. So for me, I guess... It isn't so much a sense of perfection as it is a sense of being fully immersed in the world we operate in and able to master the craft and deliver the responsibilities, live up to our promises Mm. and live up to the promise. So it's not necessarily aiming to be like the best person there's ever been or being the best in as many things as you can be, but rather it's like, I guess... Staking your claim of your part of the yes. world. Yes. Right? And being, you know, I'm going to own this part and I'm going to be the best in this part. Yeah, you make a really good point because it ceases to become comparative and it becomes an absolute target. And I don't know which one is better, easier, tougher to achieve. But I think it is this, it becomes an absolute target for yourself to deliver certain outcomes then to achieve a certain sense of balance, which I guess as we all progress in our careers, we try very hard to achieve between kind of allocating your finite resources, finite time, finite energies to doing as many worthwhile things as impassion us. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, throughout your career, you've, you've had to deal with lots of stakeholders, lots of kinds of stakeholders customers, investors, colleagues, etc. You know, so you've had lots of varied roles in organizations of different sizes and different industries, very quite interestingly. You know, what are some of the key takeaways from those experiences? Or maybe another way to think about it is also could be what are some of the key experiences from which you took things away? Ah. So this one shows up in I guess in my bios. I started my career in Unilever Philippines, PRC at the time. And like all the rest of the management trainees, we went on rotation. So sometime in sales, sometime in marketing, sometime in market research, et cetera, et cetera. And throughout that, we got exposed to different bosses. I had different bosses, different mentors, different managers. All of them were smart. All of them were tough. All of them were demanding. And that shaped me. It shaped me in ways that I think I learned to live up to expectations that were being set for me when I was quite junior and learning to set expectations for myself. And their expectations were were quite clear. You needed to understand the big picture, but you 
were not to miss any of the fine detail when you execute. Everything needed to be on spec, on time, within budget. And you probably hear me yes, saying that this. Is, that is a phrase that Minette will often repeat in our conversations within the team. And it's true because you have to deliver. And every single boss held us to account. So irrespective of how friendly the relationships were, and for a time it meant every day we were out at Hard Rock, but the next day at 7.30 in the morning, you're at your desk, you're delivering. If you are doing sales calls, you might go out drinking with the guys, but next morning at half past five, you're producing your spreadsheets and spreadsheets then were pieces of paper. And then you were out and rumarota na kayo. So you can see that. So for me, that was formative. It meant there were no excuses. It didn't matter what happened. Um, we were always told, if you want to be a manager, you manage. You execute, you deliver, you do what it takes. So I think that to me was quite formative. So you had you know, bosses and superiors and I guess like stakeholders, people you had to report to and kind of support that, you know, they didn't make it easy for you that, I mean, like for, for good cause. And I suppose like some of these people you might look back on as mentors and maybe continue to look at as mentors. What did you take from these past bosses and mentors that shaped you into the leader that you are today? What did I take from them? I think every mentor gives you a little piece of themselves. I had Angie Laxon, who was tough as nails and taught me the big picture, but also gave me management versatility. You are a different person when you present in a sales conference. You're a different person sitting in front of R&D. You're a different person when you are briefing the agency. And each one is meant to deliver the same thing. So there's an integrity around it, but it's also about understanding that these are different fields and you have to learn to speak the language. So it's almost like you're multilingual because the language of sales speaking to a customer is different from the language of advertising. Working with the agency is different from the precision dealing with R&D. And I thought that clarity that gives you many dimensions within a single integrity called the brand manager um, role. That helped me quite a bit. I also learned a lot from being in other firms like L'Oreal, where there was such a lot of romance, but fundamentally you're told you must breathe the same air as your customer. And I thought that was a great way for reminding me about how close to the customer we needed to be. So Really a lot of gifts. I find, I consider myself quite fortunate to have had all the people who invested time in me, who invested energy, and who never let me get away with stuff. <laughs> My favorite auditors are the ones who will tell me, this is not on because it sharpens you. It makes you better. The other thing you would have heard me say a lot, constraints are your friend. And I think constraints have been a great teacher for me as mm. well. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. That point particularly resonates with me because like one thing I used to tell, you know, the teams that I worked in the past, you know, when we get requirements from our stakeholders, they'd say, we need this, 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 and that. 
and my team would come to see, we can't do everything, right? There's too much to do. And what I would tell them is you embrace the constraints, right? Constraints are there. You have to deal with it. So you make them explicit. You tell your stakeholders, these are constraints. But do you remember the moment where you actually believed that, where you moved from being upset that you didn't have all the resources you wanted to suddenly realizing this is a gift. Mm. This is real. Do you remember? Yeah. Parang, I don't think there's any one single moment because there's also like different situations where it applies or there's different ways it applies. It can apply in terms of, in terms of resources. I don't mm. have enough money to do this. I don't have enough manpower to do this. And so you limit the scope of things, right? It could also be you don't have enough time, which is a slightly different kind of constraint. So yeah, I think just in very different circumstances where there were constraints, I think you eventually come to this grand unified theory of constraints. That I like that. When you're dealing with a problem, there are constraints. There's no point in worrying about the constraints, about even discussing the constraints. It's just put them out there, then work around them because that's what you have to deal with. But I remember thinking this very clearly when we were trying to come back from the quarantines and you started to bring Raid the Fridge back live on site and looking at a cost quotation from a third party <laughs> producer. And then the next thing I saw, there you were with Aya in front, welcoming guests, Carla off to the side reading what was coming in from the video stream, you on the side running and the tech and Pia up front managing as fridge master. And I just thought it's the team in-house replacing what would have been mm. a quite pricey multi-man setup. And I thought... There was something precious about that. In some ways, I think, I hope we never outgrow the instinct to do things with our own hands and to run things like we own the firm because we do. Yeah. I remember another way it was put, and I don't remember if I read it or I saw it in a video or a blog, where it's actually the constraints that define your freedoms. Wow. Right? Once you have defined and accepted, more importantly, accepted your constraints, then you know where your freedoms are. But do you think that's a form of settling? I think there's a fine line, right? There's a fine line between accepting the constraints as they are because that's what they are and challenging mm. constraints. So that's I suppose true. you should never really take constraints at face value. You should try to challenge them and see how far they can go. But once you've established what the constraints are, work within those constraints and you have now then the freedom to operate within the constraints. Or to get to understand the rules that you're going to break is another way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess in a way, accepting a constraint means just accepting what challenge we have to work around. Usually there's no way to change the fact that there is a challenge in place. There is an obstacle. Mm. So... Accepting that the obstacle is there rather than stressing about it and figuring out how to get rid of it. Rather, it frees you then to figure out how can we work around it. I remember having these conversations with different folks who worked with me where they were 
very conscious of gaps and personal weaknesses. And I would say one of the tricks you learn is to make that weakness immaterial. Mm. Learn to make the gaps just not important in your path to doing whatever it is that you do. And I think that's something we learn, particularly because when you're coming from, you're in an emerging market, um, this is not a place that is known for innovation or venture capital or tech even. It makes you focus on gaps that you need to overcome. And I think that that sharp focus, as you point out, helps you to move forward with sort of with more confidence in yourself, even if you're painfully aware that you aren't, as we started out saying, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess tying it back to experiences in leadership and leading teams, you know, it's usually the leader's job to make sure things are moving and the people, the organization sees the path forward. And if there are constraints, it's really on the leader to make sure that the team is equipped to manage, I suppose, those constraints and work around those constraints. Yeah. But I think there are times where you lead from the front and there are times when you lead from the rear. And leading from the rear is not about shirking responsibility, but it is recognizing the team will have passions and principles that they care about and that they want to pursue. And so I think it's a little bit of a dance where we start out with there's this big, beautiful mission and it's ambitious and hard and we're all going there. But at some point, and I feel this with the team. As we're getting there, you realize that some people begin to see a path that they want to drive towards. Whether it's somebody saying, we need to do more in food security, for example. We had not done any investments in food. But one of the things that certainly in the last two, three years became quite clear is that in emerging markets, we are so fragile and disruptions like supply chain disruptions, like quarantines, will mean that there will not be sufficient food for the entire population. And so when we talk about our thesis that the future will be a world of plenty, then somebody in the team standing up and saying, we have to talk about food security. We have to look for investments there. And I thought that was a classic example of recognizing that my role was to let somebody drive towards that because the freedom to pursue what you passionately believe in is also a way of developing strength within the team. So I thought that was exciting and good. Leading from behind paves the way and creates the space for others to lead themselves. Yes. Yes. And to feel the ownership. There's a, I remember some conversation years ago about sometimes being a good leader means that there are times when you must be the follower. And to appreciate that and to not feel that you're being usurped somehow, but to know that this is a point of development for the team, it's a great milestone to reach. So I'm excited to see what people will do, will say we've got to do when we start to talk about the next 10 years. So actually, the 
idea of knowing when to take a step back and allow others to lead in their own ways also kind of reminds me of your story of how Kickstart started, of how you put it forward to Globe that, hey, maybe this is something we can do. And I remember you sharing stories about, you know, at the time prior to Kickstart, Ernest had come in and he was definitely leading from the front to begin. It was a different globe, it was a different market, and there was a lot that needed to be done. But once I believe like some things were fixed, it seems like he was able to now step back and then give you the space to think, you know, what's next. And so right when you founded Kickstart, you were at Globe leading the new business group, which you technically still had. Um, what were the insights that led you to pitch Kickstart Ventures to Ernest and to Globe? Ah. That's when I think, I mean, you you have to go back to 2011, 2012 when we started. And it was increasingly clear that not all earth-shaking innovation was coming from inside corporate laboratories. So the world had gone through the global financial crisis. A lot of startups were emerging. So if you think of, you know, 07, 08, Airbnb coming around, Uber coming around. And you realize that there's such a lot of innovation coming from the fringes. And we were never going to get harness all of that sitting inside corporate offices. So asking Ernest and eventually Ernest backing Dan and Christian and myself when we went to the Globe Board to say, take a bet on us. And it was the most honest pitch we have ever had we had told i've seen the decks you've seen the decks (laughs) it was pretty ugly um but you know to tell the board we cannot dimension the market size and that's the first thing everyone asks for but we will never be able to dimension it if we don't go out with a fund and if we go out with a fund we've got to invest and if we invest we are bound to come across companies that will not make it and will have to write off And the first one will probably be written off and so will the second and so will the third. And you can't let yourself get terrified into paralysis because if we are average, then one out of 10 will make it. And you won't know until you do the 10. And to the credit of the Globe Board of Directors, they allowed us to make this bet. They said only three of you can go. (laughs) (laughs) So constraints. But but they let us take this bet. And that was in 2012. I think I think the other lesson I got was it is a partnership with your boss. If you know, for myself, certainly it's been a really good productive partnership with Ernest and a very good productive partnership with Dan, whom I hope you're going to get on a podcast at some time. <laughs> <laughs> Just because We're so different from each other, and I think that's what makes it work. Thanks for joining us for the first half of our conversation with Minette. Tune into part two to hear her thoughts on building company culture, spotting spiky talent, decision-making in the riskiest investment asset class, and avoiding the traps of toxic mindsets among founders. Thanks for joining us. Follow Kickstart Ventures on Facebook and LinkedIn to know who we're featuring next.